Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Thank you guys for leading us this morning. If you want to grab your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. That's where we'll be today. Luke 9. And the, uh, the passage we'll look at today um, is one that actually shows up in all four gospel accounts. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give an account of what we'll be studying today. Each writer, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each uh, preaching or writing to a different audience, capturing a few different elements, um, but here all record with, with really consistent clarity and detail this miracle where Jesus feeds thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And this is important for us, it's significant for, for a bunch of reasons, but I'd like to highlight just one of them um, as a preface for our time together. This miracle that we see in the life and ministry of Jesus for his short, roughly three years of public ministry of people uh, b- largely knowing who he was and hearing who he was and hearing his message that led from his, the beginning of his public ministry to the cross where he was crucified. This miracle kind of stands in the middle. It, it kind of stands as a, as a highlight or a, a pinnacle anchor point, if you will, or a signpost in the ground for his ministry. Up until this point, Jesus has been teaching and healing, and he'll continue to to keep doing that all the way until the cross and the resurrection. But right soon, here after this uh, event, his focus shifts. For the first time in just a few, uh, maybe uh, in your Bibles, just turn to the next page over Jesus, for the first time, starts to talk about what it's going to take for him, that he's going to be walking from from this time forward, marching to his own death. His sending out of the 12 that we talked about last week to do ministry is the the kind of the, the first step towards handing off this important work of gospel proclamation and ministry of mercy. And the question that Jesus asks Peter, which we'll look at next week, are the show us kind of a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus. So I just want you to, to take that idea and stick it in your pocket and hang on to that. Uh, and the reason I bring this up is because for, for our multi-year study in the, in the book of Luke, that's our, our plan here, should the Lord tarry, should He not return We'll keep, we'll keep every spring uh, opening up our time in January, studying uh, Luke's gospel uh, for the next couple of years. But the theme for this whole series actually comes from Luke 19, which we still won't get to till like 2024. But, but Luke 19, when, when Jesus is asked, what is, what is your mission? What is your purpose? He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. His saving of them is is not just saving them from sickness and demons and meeting their physical needs, although out of compassion, Jesus does these things. We'll see that here this morning. But his greater work is one of spiritual rescue. Jesus has not only come to satisfy their stomachs, but to satisfy their souls. This isn't just the work of a good teacher or some spiritual guru. This is the job of a divine savior. And that's why this shift in Jesus' ministry, this pinnacle kind of miracle that we see helps us see that 
that transition in his ministry and the, the ultimate purpose for his coming. See, we see over and over again in the Gospels, and we recognize it in our own lives as well, if we're honest, that there is a struggle for us as, as humans. Humanity struggles to meet our own needs. If anything, out of this last you know, 12 months of our lives on this planet has shown us just how incredibly weak we are. So it's hard enough to, 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 to meet our own needs, let alone meet the needs of others. But Jesus is able. Jesus is able to meet our needs. Jesus is able, be, even beyond that, to satisfy our souls, a deeper need. He is our compassionate shepherd and our all-powerful Savior. So we're going to read the text together. Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. Not a, not a ton of verses today, um, but still a lot to get through. So let's read together. It'll be on the screen. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 10. <clears throat> on the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them, says Jesus took them, and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to, and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, in order to unpack this text, I'd like to take this approach. First, we're going to kind of walk through this narrative, this story, highlighting some of the key points along the way. And, and then at the end, we'll unpack a couple areas of application, um, just so hopefully you can follow me through this a little bit. There's something here for the hungry crowd, and there's something here for the disciples. So story and context first, and then... Um, couple areas of application, if that's all right with you. Good, I'm glad. All right, as I mentioned at the beginning, this particular event in the life and ministry of Jesus is one that only a handful uh, of all four gospel accounts record. Um, again, uh, just as, a, as, a, as an aside, each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is writing to a different audience, different culture, different religious background. And so the, the parts of Jesus' ministry and teaching the fulfillment of Old Testament law to Jews, the hope of grafting in and welcoming in the outsider to Gentiles. Each gospel writer takes a slightly different angle. If you're looking at Jesus maybe uh, in, a, in a courtyard with four windows, use that analogy. But here, each of the four gospel writers highlights this event. And this is how Luke walks us through the narrative. On their return, the apostles told him, verse 10, of all that they had done. And Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. 
Last week, we read that Jesus had, had sent out these 12 to tell others of the good news of the kingdom of God, to, to preach hope that the kingdom of God was at hand, calling them to repent, and to heal the sick, to preach the gospel, as we said last week, and practice mercy. And then they came back from this short-term mission trip, right? This two-by-two buddy system uh, adventure into the local communities, and they tell Jesus about everything that they experienced. Luke doesn't give us details, but, but think for a second. If you look at the ministry of Jesus and the, the disciples to this point, the stories they likely told of bl- the blind who could now see, the lame who could walk, the sick who were now cured, the people who were hopeless who had received a message of hope, getting a glimpse of the kingdom, all very exciting stuff. And Jesus does with them what he often does himself. After a time of intense ministry, pouring out to, uh, to love and care for others, he pulls away to a quiet place for rest and for prayer. And he, he grabs the disciples and says, okay, let's, let's go. Let's go to this town, uh, Luke tells us, of Bethsaida. Now, it, this town is on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, and on the eastern side of the the inlet, the Jordan River that comes into the Sea of Galilee, and then it exits out the the south side of the Sea of Galilee. On the eastern side, so away from where they had been ministering, is this town. When the crowds learned it, verse 11, they followed him. This is also becoming a theme. The crowds are wanting to be with him, and so wherever he goes, they go. They followed him. And he doesn't get upset with them. Luke tells us in verse 11, he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So here, Jesus continues this ministry he's been doing. The phrase, no rest for the weary, kind of is exemplified here in Jesus' life. And as the day continued, Luke says, people got hungry because this is what people do. We get hungry. Some of you are thinking, all right, it's still early, but... When is lunch? And Jesus has compassion on them. His disciples, being the pragmatists, say, Hey, Jesus, you should send them away now to get something to eat. Let's be done with ministry for the day. It's dinner time. We're in a place where there's not a lot of food or lodging. Reading a little further, we we see that there are 5,000 men there. Likely more if you include the women and children, maybe even livestock that might be a part of this massive crowd. That's a lot of people in what Luke says the disciples call a desolate place. Now, we don't think it's the complete middle of nowhere, but it's clearly not in the town center. They're not in Bethsaida proper, if you will. They're likely on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, east of the Jordan, but west of the main city. but they're away from major supply because the disciples say, hey, there's not enough here, especially not for 5,000 people. So send them away into the surrounding villages and towns to go buy food, find places to rest for the night. There just isn't enough here. Disciples tell Jesus, hey, send the people away. And Jesus tells them, no, you give them something to eat. I don't know if that catches you as funny at all, but when I read this, I just kind of chuckled, like, really? 
Really? I mean, could you imagine the disciples' faces in this moment? They're looking at this crowd that they've been with all day. It's hot. They're hungry. If they have food, they just have enough for themselves. Like they have their Lunchable with them and that's it. And they're like, what, what do you mean I give them something to eat? That's just a funny aside. I'm just picturing the disciples' faces going, what? 5,000 plus. Not just 5,000 people, 5,000 plus. And the disciples being, again, very pragmatic. I like these guys. But, but Lord, we only have five loaves of bread and two small fish. John's gospel tells us where they got this tiny meal. They stole it from a boy. No, they didn't take it from him. He offered it up. A boy said, well, here's what I have. And likely these were five uh, small kind of handheld-sized barley loaves. And, and barley loaves were, were not like the high-end, you know, artisan, uh, handmade sourdough loaf. Right? The ones that everyone has made in the last year from watching tasty videos. No, no. These are like a poor man's bread loaf. Very likely. Five small barley loaves and two fish that were donated by a young boy. And so the disciples are like confused. We, this is all we have. We only have this small amount of food. Unless they say, unless you, we're supposed to go and buy food for all these people, kind of leaving the question hanging like, you don't really expect that of us, do you? We, we don't have that kind of cash, Jesus. This is kind of a ridiculous notion. Uh, they live off whatever uh, they've made in their lives, you know, fishermen and tax collectors and average folks, and they're doing this kind of itinerant public ministry. So they live on donations and the hospitality and generosity of others who receive their message and say, hey, let's give you a meal for the night. Let's give you housing for the night. We'd like to contribute to your cause. Here's some bread to take along the, the way. So it would be just an absurd idea to have these 12 men feed 5,000 others plus. So Jesus doesn't really address their concerns or, or their, their issues. He just says, why don't you just have the people sit down in groups? And Luke tells us of about 50 or so. The disciples want to send them away, but Jesus invites them to sit. And he takes the bread and the fish and he prays a blessing over the bread. And this likely would have been a prayer of thanksgiving. Blessed art thou, O Lord, for the food that we are about to receive. As he lifted up five small barley loaves and two small fish. And then he broke the loaves, tore them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, Luke says. To bring them to the crowd. Breaking the bread and tearing the loaves in order to be distributed. Hand this out, he says. And that's what they did. Each disciple taking a, a basket full of bread to one of the smaller groups that is now seated. Hungry people. And then likely coming back to Jesus to, to refill his basket and go to the next group and, and so on and so on. And verse 17 says, And they all ate and were satisfied. That's important. Some scholars think that maybe this was kind of a, 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 a symbolic meal. That maybe everyone just got a little morsel. But that doesn't make sense for two reasons. One, the math doesn't work. 5,000 to 7,000 people and five loaves. I don't care how small you cut a loaf of bread. 
I don't care if it's like a large loaf of bread. I don't think you get a thousand pieces out of bread uh, of bread out of an average sized bread loaf. If someone wants to bake or buy a barley loaf and cut it into pieces and report back, how many tiny pieces did you get? I'd be really curious. Let me know if you can get a thousand pieces. But more importantly, Luke tells us that everyone ate until they were satisfied. The, the tiny square of bread we take in communion, we believe aids in our spiritual satisfaction, but it does not satisfy our physical hunger. We leave here and go home and have lunch, right? You are like, I'm good for the day. I had my tiny piece of gluten-free bread and my half ounce of grape juice. Yum, right? No, we go home and have lunch. So clearly that's not what happened here. This is a physical miracle. 5,000 plus people ate enough bread and fish until they were full. In fact, they were so satisfied and there was so much food left over that there were 12 baskets full of broken pieces. And that's just not leftovers left on the ground. That was broken pieces that were literally broken to be distributed. That's not waste like crumbs left over after my kids get done eating at times. That was intentionally broken to be distributed, and they had 12 baskets left over. Now, I I don't know exactly how it all worked. None of the Gospels spell it out exactly. But I imagine it like this. Jesus is breaking and distributing bread, and the disciples, each with a basket themselves, is coming back to refill it and then bring it to the next group, right? So if you have 50 people approximately per group, One of the Gospels says 50 to 100. 5,000 plus people, plus or minus, total people, size of groups. You have something like 100 groups of people all sitting together, huddled and spread out. And when all is said and done, when every person had had their fill, the disciples were able to come back to to the stockpile of torn bread and each of the 12 could fill up their basket once more with what was left over that had not yet been given out. The picture here is one of having more, much more at the end than even the amount they started with. Think about that. Five small barley loaves and two small fish would maybe fill a basket if it was like a personal-sized basket. Like this is my bread basket I carry around with me when I'm traveling. So they had more at the end than when they even began. The disciples want to send them away. Jesus invites them to sit, and then he satisfies their hunger. This is the story and its context, right? It says they ate until they were full, and they gathered what was left over and picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Maybe you've heard this story before. The question is that as as I'm reading it and studying it this week, what do I do with this? What do we do with this story? How are we to understand what this has to do with us? I see two areas of application, and this is where I'd like to pull this apart a little bit. There's an application for those who are hungry, the crowd of people who are there to hear what this Jesus guy has to say and who are hungry. And there's an application for these 12 disciples who are with Jesus as this is happening. We're going to look at both of them. First, for the hungry. I think there's a huge 
takeaway here for those who are hungry, not just physically hungry or needy, but spiritually as well. Jesus is the one who can satisfy our needs. In Mark's account of this miracle, he tells us that Jesus looked on the crowds that had gathered after they basically followed him away, when he's trying to get to the wilderness to rest, they follow him. Jesus has compassion on them. Mark tells us that Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He cares for them. It's not pity, it's compassion. God delights to provide for his people what they need. And this is not just a New Testament thing, like it's just, you know, the loving Jesus guy who likes to care for people. This is God's delight in caring for His people. And you can see the picture of it all the way back in Exodus chapter 16. Let's uh, just go there for me, uh, with me for a second. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles, but you can if you'd like, Exodus 16. God's people had been enslaved in Egypt. They stayed too long in the land of Egypt and became servants, slaves in Egypt. Okay? Moses is raised up by God to go to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, you need to let God's people go. Pharaoh says no. God brings plagues upon Egypt. Pharaoh finally relents. He gives up and says, fine. He releases the Hebrews. They leave. And as they're leaving, Pharaoh changes his mind and says, no, I want them back. So he sends his army after them. You've heard this story, right? God opens the Red Sea and brings his people through on dry land. Preserves them, protects them. And as they cross to the other side, Pharaoh's army says, well, we can do that too. They chase God's people through the path in the Red Sea. God closes up the sea around them, drowns them. It's the part of the flannel graph in Sunday school that they don't show you. We're all like the drowned Egyptian soldiers destroys their army and continues to lead his people through the promised land or to the promised land through the wilderness. So in Exodus 16, they've been freed from slavery and Moses, who wrote down the book of Exodus, tells us that they have been wandering kind of a little bit in the wilderness. They've been freed from slavery in Egypt for about two and a half months. At this time, the provisions that they took from Egypt had mostly run out. They didn't have adequate food, didn't have adequate water. And so the people grumbled against Moses, Exodus tells us. Verse 3 of Exodus 16, this is the language of the grumbling hungry people. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we, say, when we sat excuse me, by the meat pots and ate bread to the full... For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Oh, that we could go back to Egypt where we sat around the pots of fresh meat and now you've brought us out here into the wilderness to kill us all. You were slaves. Yes, but there were three square. We had meat. That's basically the the attitude of Israel at this time. And the Lord showing compassion for his grumbling people, provides for the entire nation bread that would just show up every morning. It's funny. When people saw it, this bread that God provided, they said, what is it? 
which is actually the Hebrew word for manna, which means, what is this? So if you wonder what manna is, it literally translates, what? Basically, it was a simple type of flatbread. They needed, all they needed to do, God tells them, all, all you need to do is when you get up in the morning, go out and collect what you need for the day. Just for the day, for you, for your family. Every day for, for, for uh, excuse me, yeah, for six days, they would go and collect what they needed. And, and on that sixth day, they'd collect double so that they wouldn't need to collect on the Sabbath. Don't stash away extra for, for future days because when they did that, it would go bad. And to not delay in going out and taking what they needed in the morning as were God's instructions because by midday it would, it would melt and waste away. But they could go out every morning and gather what they needed for the day. And verse 18 says this, Whoever gathered much, maybe for their larger family, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. In providing bread for his people in the desert or in multiplying a kid's lunch to feed thousands or maybe through a meal being provided by someone for the entire community group or that pan of lasagna or enchiladas delivered to you when you're out of work or you've just had a baby or you're recovering from surgery. In each instance, God is caring for the literal physical needs of his people. God is compassionate in this way. And in the provision of meeting your physical needs, the Holy Spirit is also drawing out a spiritual reality as well. Uh, Theologian Phil Riken, in his commentary on the book of Exodus, says this. I think I have the quote up there. Nice little picture I stole from the internet. Manna had the educational purpose of teaching them, teaching God's people, to depend on God for all their needs. Later, Moses explained that although manna was a physical miracle, its purpose was to teach the spiritual lesson that God is the source of all our life. The prophet Moses said, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Our hunger is a tangible reminder that we cannot satisfy ourselves, but that we rely on God, who is the source of all of our life. So it's not an either-or when it comes to Jesus' compassion, that He either cares for our physical needs or, and practical needs, or He cares for our spiritual needs. It's both. They're meant Our need physically is meant to reflect our deeper and more significant spiritual need. So when we we recognize our physical need, when we hunger, when our stomach growls, what spiritual need is being identified? In what or whom are we placing our hope? Are we trusting too much in our own hands to provide with no thought that it's God who actually made these hands? Do you grumble maybe against your boss or your spouse or God himself when there always seems to not be enough? Or do we bring all these needs no matter what they are? Lay them down before the Lord asking and believing that God will supply for our every need out of his abundant riches. 
about nine, ten years ago, uh, in a really cold November, our furnace just died. We had uh, called a, a service tech and they came out and looked over our furnace, which we knew was old when we bought the house, but we just weren't expecting, you know, it to die right then. Any possible fix would have been much, as much or more than just replacing the thing outright. And so a new, a new furnace was in our near future. The problem was we had very little money in our savings uh, for, for, for replacing the whole thing. We, could, we had a little, but not a, a lot. <laughs> Here's a free lesson. Emergency funds are good ideas. Just FYI, put that in your back pocket, especially if you uh, want to buy a house. Especially if you want to buy a house that's almost 100 years old, okay? Emergency funds equals good idea. Now, the service tech was able to get the furnace running again temporarily, but it was not a long-term fix. So we, we knew that this was fast approaching. We had little kids at home. It was cold. And, um, and so we prayed. <laughs> we had a couple close friends around us who also prayed with us. And we prayed for two things, both wisdom and provision. God, give us wisdom in how we should tackle this. How, 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 what's the best course of action? Do we try to fix it? Do we get a new one? Do we uh, use their like no credit or no interest option? Uh, what do we do? And we prayed that God would provide. The next day, a friend reached out to me and said when they first got married, someone gave them a gift, uh, a, a small financial gift to help them with a need that they had had. And since that day, in their marriage, our friends, they had set aside a little bit of money every month into, uh, just earmarked it in their own savings account or checking account or wherever they kept it in order to give it to someone else and bless them at some point. And at first it was, a, it was like $20 a month or $30, I mean, whatever they could set aside. And they had prayed about it and they decided they wanted to give us something to help with our furnace. Now, I hadn't told him or anyone else exactly how much we were short the difference between what our savings account said and what the HVAC guy said it would cost for a furnace. But he handed me a folded check. And after he left, I unfolded that check and I was awestruck because the amount on that check was almost to the dollar, the difference between what we had in our savings account to spend on this and the cost that we were being quoted for our furnace. Now I share that as a tangible example in my life of the kind of provision the Lord was generous and compassionate to provide at a specific point in time. Not only was God kind to provide in that way, but it has fundamentally changed the way we not only think about savings and emergency funds, by the way, good idea, but about how God might desire to use us to be a provision, His provision in the life of someone else. And it's a consistent reminder for me that more than just food and housing and clothes, God is our source of everything. And in big and small ways, that gets repeated over and over and over again in our lives and likely in yours. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, which we read this morning, chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of this invitation from Isaiah. We overflow with gratitude at God's provision and we pray for our faith to expand that we would believe and act on the belief that Jesus truly does care for us, that he really will provide for us and is enough not just to satisfy our stomachs, but to satisfy our souls. So that's the first piece of application for all who are hungry. Jesus, the compassionate shepherd, is able to provide for us so that we too are satisfied. The second area of application is aimed at the disciple. And these aren't mutually exclusive like we are one or the other. I, I want you to, to hear that. Jesus is proving something about who he is that they are going to need, that they don't know they need it yet, the disciples, and that we need, even as Charlie started this morning that we are going to need as we are commissioned out into the world that God has placed us. So this is the second area of application, the disciple. The account of this miracle, feeding of the 5,000, is different from the other miracles we've been reading lately because it does not record the reaction of the crowd at all. I don't know if you picked up on that. When Jesus calms the storm, the disciples fall down in fear and awe. When Jesus frees the man oppressed by demons, the people respond with fear and anger, the man himself responds with gratitude. When Jesus heals the woman who's been bleeding, she testifies to the grace of God that's been shown her. When Jesus raises a girl back to life, Luke tells us her parents are amazed. And here, when thousands eat to their full with just a few loaves and fish, we hear nothing. It would suggest that as much as the miracle was for the hungry people, that perhaps it was meant for the disciples. Remember what I said at the beginning. From this point forward, the trajectory that Jesus takes from this point on is decidedly toward the cross, which will include increasing persecution and eventually death. So not only was Jesus in his uh, breaking of this bread and expanding and feeding all these people, not only was he pointing back to the provision of God in the desert, reminding all those who are eating that he, as the eternal son of God, is God's provision to meet their needs and satisfy their souls, but he was also pointing forward to the cross and beyond the cross to the glorious resurrection and beyond the resurrection to the final resurrection, giving them a glimpse of the future where the Lord of all creation, the Savior King, is hosting a banquet, a wedding feast of the Lamb where all the citizens of the kingdom will be seated and the King will be celebrating his marriage to his bride. We get this picture in Revelation chapter 19. The Apostle John, one of the original disciples, uh, historically that tells us who wasn't uh, martyred by a gruesome death but was exiled to basically a solitary confinement on a prison island. John is given a vision, which is where, how we have the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Listen to what John says about the glorious kingdom to come. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The meal with the crowd is a precursor to the meal that they would share in the upper room on the night Jesus was betrayed that would lead to his death, which is in itself a precursor and a placeholder to the great marriage feast of the Lamb to come. A tangible signal and sign to the disciples that the kingdom was already here. This is Jesus. This is the one we are waiting for. He is the Savior that's been told to our fathers that He's coming. Not only is this miracle proof of His power, but specific proof of His identity. This is one of the reasons we take communion regularly here at River City. It is a tangible reminder that Christ is our Savior. He is our sacrificial Lamb. He is our victorious King. His death has covered our sin. His life is now our life. We have died, and our life is now hidden in Him. And we affirm this every time we take the Lord's Supper together. Pastor Devin will dig into uh, this more next week, and I don't want to step on his toes or get too far ahead of ourselves, but these disciples are going to be presented with a question from Jesus that will shape the rest of their lives. We'll read it next week, but they're going to need an answer to the question from Jesus, who do you say that I am? Who am I? And this miracle of bread and fish is setting the stage for them to be able to make a good confession, to have a good answer to that question. And in a sense, it's setting the stage for us as well. How do we answer that question. I won't say anything more because otherwise I don't want to give Devin things to, he has to talk about. Okay. So the condition of the crowd, hungry and helpless, is a picture of our shared humanity. We experience practical, physical need. And on our own, spiritually famished. We get hungry again. We get thirsty again. And this miracle is a reminder that all of our areas of need, all of our hunger pains, all of our thirst, all of our need points us to the reality that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our deep need. He is our compassionate Shepherd, when he wills something, it shall be done. When he commands something, it will come to pass. Jesus alone creates light out of darkness, order out of disorder, strength out of weakness, joy out of sorrow, life out of death, and supplies for us out of nothing. Exactly what we need. And this is sometimes hard to believe when times are really tough, when we don't have enough. But we believe And we agree together that we believe that He will provide out of the abundance of His grace. That He is able to multiply the smallest of supply into more than enough to satisfy the largest hunger. We believe, help our unbelief. 
and Jesus commissions his disciples to distribute his provision. As we mentioned last week at the beginning of Luke 9, he provides out of his own power and for whatever reason, often chooses to use the means of others to carry the baskets of his provision to those in need. (laughs) He has called us disciples of the risen Christ Jesus as his ambassadors. He has commissioned us to be ministers of his grace, preaching the gospel and practicing mercy. He has already made us citizens of his kingdom. He has proven that he can provide for all that we need. And he has promised a glorious future that he is currently preparing for us. Jesus is able to meet our needs. Jesus is able to satisfy our deeper needs, our souls. And he is showing himself to be our compassionate shepherd and our all-powerful Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge our great need of you. And with every twinge of hunger, with every uh, deep breath, when the account comes due and there doesn't seem to be enough, we ask for two things. One, we ask you to be kind and provide for the needs of your people. And we ask, Holy Spirit of God, that you would stir our hearts to see the the deeper area of need the place where we're putting our hope and our trust, the place where our confidence lies, the temptation to run our own lives and organize them to such a degree that surely we can manage our way out of every struggle. Holy Spirit, would you free us from that bondage that we might see you as the source and supply for all of life. Would you encourage our hearts now? Would you cause them to well up with gratitude and thanksgiving as we come to the communion table, recognizing all that you've done to to purchase us, to rescue us? Would you satisfy our souls afresh as we're reminded of the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf to, to save us, to sanctify us, to work in us as we grow, and to commission us, to send us work in our hearts now by the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.